the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. This is episode 116. Episode 116. It's been a lot going on this week, Ryan. I'm the host, uh, Josh Shelton, friend and co-host Ryan Ray. Ryan, ready to jump into it this week, man. We got... Uh, lot to cover. We got fires down uh, going in Texas. We've had mass shootings all over the place. I mean, this has been a crazy week. Yeah, it has been. And uh, I'm heading out to Midland, so pretty booked up, but going to the Produced Water Society Conference this week. So if you're going to be out there, let me know. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm sure Nate will do that. I'll link to it in the show notes. But Josh, we have some exciting news. Um, and we talked about this not recently on the show, but if you remember back, we talked about iTunes and kind of how it's hard to figure out what's going on. Well, they went in there and they redid the rankings. And at one time we talked on the show, I think that we were number 70 to 80 kind of ranked on the top 100 shows. Well, what they did was they went in there and they broke it out by a category so you could get a better look at who was what. And so under the business news category, which is where we are as of today, they have the new section, which is the all-time bestsellers. All-time bestsellers. Not today, not yesterday, not recent. All-time bestsellers. The Texas Oil and Gas Podcast is number 18, which is pretty freaking crazy, man. <laughs> I mean, you stop and think about where we started at, where we're at. We're number 18 on the all-time all time. I feel like Alan Iverson. We're not talking about practice. We're talking about all time bestseller <laughs> list, you know? Uh, and that's a big thanks to our listeners who have done that. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Let's see who number one is. So number one is Slate, um, which is a pretty big publication. The Economist is number three. Um, we've got some big, big wigs in front of us. However, I think I think we can crack that top ten. I really do. And everything's bigger in Texas. So... We have, I think, 126, something like that, five-star reviews. We have a couple commies who gave us one-star reviews. Um, Josh, we need to see if we can do this and get it. I don't know how we can go. But based upon our numbers, based upon the growing trend that we've seen in our podcast, yeah, 119 five-star reviews. Um, If you can go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating and a five-star review. That would be pretty incredible because I think we can move up a few spots. I'm not sure exactly how high, but I think it's worth trying. And we haven't asked for one in a while. We haven't asked for anything in a while. Here we are coming to you people asking for a five-star rating and review in iTunes. See how high we can get. And uh, that'd be pretty cool if we could crack the top ten. I don't I don't know if, I don't know how often they adjust these or move these, but you are listening to royalty greatness um, legends right here now. Just just to be clear, we would like to be – there's four or five on Rushmore. How many is there on Mount Rushmore? I think there's four. Five. Four or five. five. I think oh, five. Oh, oh. Four, four. Nate's chiming in saying there's four on Rushmore. So we need to be the top four to be in the Mount Rushmore of Business News Podcast. If you do that, we may change the name to the Mount, Mount Rushmore Podcast for a day or something. So uh, – well, Ryan, anyway, makes, makes me wonder, you know, uh, there's a, a couple ideas that come to mind. I mean, is there a benchmark we can set, like a goal for reviews where we uh, we do something like uh, something similar to a shrimp bowl or something like that to celebrate? I, I, well, I think to celebrate, we'll have we'll, – okay, here's the deal. So if we crack the top four, we won't let Josh talk for an episode. How about that? Well, the whole episode, he'll just sit there, he'll be quiet. That would be a real benefit for the listeners. Well, we dropped a 10 in a week. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
we'll just cut Josh out. Or, 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 um, if we crack the top four, we're getting the Mount Rushmore. Maybe we won't make fun of Nate for an episode. I don't know if I can do a full episode, but like half an episode, we'll we'll give Nate a reprieve. I don't know. You, the listeners can find out. They can send in something to the podcast. We'll be happy to get some kind of reward, um, something along those lines. But it is it is exciting. And thank you to listeners because really, obviously, um, without you guys, you know, we would be just two bums talking to each other. Which is we're still two bums talking to each other, but you know, we're 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 um, people listening and a lot of people listening and. Uh, and growing. And so, um, speaking of the, the duck episode did really well last week. So thank you for everyone who tunes in. Takesonlyguyspodcast.com is the website. Shoot us your feedback. Curious what you guys thought of the duck discussion. All right, Josh. That's it. And Nate's chiming in said that would be great if we laid off him half an episode. So for Nate people, half an episode reprieve for Nate. Please, 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 five-star rating and review. Um, of course, if you don't like Nate... If you don't like Nate, we can flip this and we can do a whole episode of berating Nate. You know, I, I, I'm fine either way. Whatever it takes to get these, I'm, I'm, I'm cheap. Whatever it takes. So if it's give Nate reprieve, double down on Nate, you know, whatever. Just let us know. Let the listeners choose. Well, uh, this week, Ryan, the Texas Shell Pioneer Struggle to Appease Investors article came out. And uh, and in the meetings that I've, I've had over the last couple of weeks, one of the things that I've been coming back to uh, time and time again is how the investors in the oil and gas industry are starting to shift uh, the way they're doing things. Well, Diamondback Energy, they went public um, seven years ago. Um, and... They haven't been producing a positive cash flow for a few years, but it looks like they're having a major breakthrough this year and entering into next year. Their cash flow is supposed to be enormous uh, compared to you know most of the other companies. But for you know, I think they mentioned that six companies have went bankrupt uh, in this last quarter. Um, a lot of companies are struggling to produce the sort of ROI that these investors are expecting. And so it's putting quite a squeeze on uh, many of the players in the industry. And Ron, what do you, what do you think about this, man? This has been something that, that I think has been one of the keys to what's been going on uh, with oil prices being decent, but still a lot of pressure being put on these companies. Uh, this seems to be the, the key to what's really going on, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we have a listener who we've talked about on the show a couple times, Speakner, and we have, uh, well, we haven't officially ID'd Speakner. He wants to remain anonymous. He has sent in some insights, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Um, but he has some interesting thoughts on on how some of this stuff shakes out. And, you know, it, it's funny, Josh, and the, the, the hard thing for me is when the narrative starts, it's easy for me and for you and for everyone else to pile into the narrative and to go with it. And so right now the narrative is is that the shell producers are they're going they're, you know it's over the game's over and um, and it's going to happen and that obviously for some of the shell producers that might be true we've at least I I know and I think you agree on some level at least my theory is is that you know the bigger companies will eventually buy this up and that will create the stability at least from the U S side of things you can't control internationally the the stability that the U S uh, industry needs um, because if you have a you know a smaller amount of players um, you can respond to the market a lot bigger the thing that struck me about this and why I sent it over to you was we talked about Diamondback last year and you kind of I was meeting with the listener one time and you kind of had a throwaway line it's going to be interesting to see if they make it or not to my Diamondback because they were buying stuff that was really really pricey if you remember and we were looking at those numbers and like man these numbers are right 
I don't know how they're going to make it just because the numbers are just they, they, they seem to be um, pretty inflated. I say I say inflated is not the right term. They seem to be buying stuff at uh, buying stuff at the top of the market, if you will, or, or a high point in the market. And it was like, okay, I'm not sure how they're going to navigate these waters. But if this article is is true, and that's why I'm curious to see what some of the feedback on this one is. Um, they have maybe found a way to to kind of punch through that after buying some high priced assets. Again, now Josh and I aren't reporting this; we're just commenting on it. So, so for me, the thing that struck me is going back. If Pioneer, uh, not Pioneer, if Dimeback brought bought high priced assets, and they're going to be cash flowing, what are they doing? What is it that's unique and special about them? And can other shell producers? Um, get in their model and follow it. Of course, three months from now, dime back could go belly up or you know something like that. So so that's that's always possible possible. Um, but just 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 thinking about this, if there if there is something to this, um, will other companies try to figure out the dime back model? Now that being said, we don't break news in, in the sense of reporting news, but I have heard some interesting rumblings about Diamondback and some things are going on. Nothing negative. Some some interesting things that might be happening by the end of the year, um, which could help actually bolster this case. So it's going to be interesting to see if that plays out as well. And if it happens, then I will uh, send the podcast. Yeah. So it was listeners sending it in, and I don't like to report on listener stuff. Listen to me, I can. So, uh, but anyways, so Don Back's interesting to watch because two reasons. One, and we're going to talk about Concho here in a second. Um, there, there, there's a lot of people saying, hey, these shell producers, they can't make it. They're going under. This article seems to be saying there's a glimmer of hope, at least for Dimeback. Um, if that's the case, can other producers fall in line and call up and say, hey, we want to do the Dimeback model? Will that back Wall Street off of them? I don't know. But again, the trend's going one way. Dimeback seems to be pushing its narrative. And I think it's just worth throwing it out there for people to kind of follow and say, okay, maybe Dimeback can uh, figure out a way to do it. If so, there may be hope for other folks. Maybe not, but we'll see. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting watching. Uh, you know that they were they were the hot topic, I believe. You know, I, I can't remember if that was last year, Ron, or if that was the end of 2017 when they were going nuts. Yeah, it's yeah, maybe it, may it may have been 2017. It's been a while, but it all, it we all, talk about them a lot. Yeah, and they were just yeah, they were buying just everything, everything. Well, uh, you know, you mentioned the theory that that we have, Ron, about what's going to happen in the industry about big companies coming in buying up the smaller companies. Uh, in, uh, Jordan Bloom, Business Energy at the Houston Chronicle, he wrote an article this week where he predicts Exxon, Chevron are moving to dominate Permian as small small players are pulling back. And this is kind of what we've been expecting to happen uh, as some of these smaller companies declare bankruptcy or they position themselves to sell. Um, companies like Chevron are going to come in and start and start gobbling these these smaller companies up. And it looks like this is what's starting to happen right now. Um, no, no big acquisitions that I've heard of from these two companies. Other, you know, you got the Oxy one with Anadarko, but um, they're definitely making the moves, and and it's going to be interesting to see what companies they are targeting. Uh, we have a little uh, Oxy deal coming up here um, in the Texas Roundup that we're going to hit briefly, but um, Chevron and Exxon they have to be targeting some companies. Uh, I just mentioned to see which ones they go after, or what acreage, whether it's Texas, New Mexico side, or. Um, it's going to be, you know, fun to watch for sure. Yeah, and there's rumblings, Josh, and again, unfortunately, we can't really kind of get in this list of confidence. But there's rumblings that maybe one of these two companies is going to have an announcement 
sooner rather than later about an acquisition. So keep your ears peeled for that. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk about the speaker stuff because we got our next piece about Concho, and this will tie into this. So one thing we theorized is, is that these smaller producers um, are going to try to sell to larger producers. Now, we had a, a listener um, tell us a while back that uh, he works for a small EMP company. He said, hey, the small EMPs are being told right now, don't go out and start with the hopes of flipping to larger companies like a Chevron, Exxon, whoever. Um, and we, I think we're, I think we're seeing that that's definitely right. The question is going to be is is are some of these more mature EMP companies that are smaller can they go ahead and turn over to um, to the Exxon's of the world or Chevron's of the world? Um, and, and so, Speakner, let's get to Speakner because that's going to tie in here. Kind of, we got our guest coming on here in just a minute. Speakner sent in a note the other day. Okay, so Concho the other day opened up. Um, at seventy-seven fifty, and Speaker sent this note. This was last week after the earnings report on Thursday. He said, "This is the largest Permian producer until Oxy and Apache merger is official." I'm oh, sorry, not Apache. Um, um, and Darko, thank you. And and Darko merger is official next week. Um, Concho is a very strongly run company. Now, what do you think this pretends to the average, let alone weak players? Tell you Armageddon is coming. And so, Speaker's theory, and I'll. We'll probably get this teased out more as time goes along because he's agreed to kind of send in some notes because I've talked to him offline. Speaker theory is is that these companies will not get bought out. That if and Speaker will correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my, my, my understanding is that they're not going to get bought out. They're just going to go out of business. Um, you know, and he calls it Armageddon. You know, kind of blood in the streets. You know, mass layoffs, mass stuff like that. And I'm not. I'm just not convinced that's going to happen. Um, I, I think that there's too many variables to safely predict that and and so if you started seeing rigs come off theoretically assuming depending on how it's the economy the price should slowly rise um and so if you start seeing mass rigs come off the price should rise quicker um and how wall street will react to that how the how the other permian players react to that is kind of an unknown thing so i'm, I'm not so you do have, and Speaker is a very smart person just from talking to him and, 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 and listening to that. But when we go back to, we got Concho struggling, but then you see Diamondback showing a glimmer of hope. Um, Exxon and Chevron are trying to position themselves for long-term market stability. There's all these factors. And for me, when I, when I hear these stories, it's like, okay, I'm not exactly sure where do you double down at, where do you kind of hold, and where do you kind of you know, pull out? Because, listen, the trade deal with China gets done. Let's say the economy picks back up. Let's say there's there's, there's um, d- uh, the, the forecast change because some of the stuff is based on forecast. The forecast for demand growth in Africa increases. Um, prices begin, you know, there's stability in the Middle East. Um, you know, prices might start to tick back up. But but so anyways, so I think that there's at this point, Josh. What I think we want to do is is say, hey, there's a lot of commentary about what's going on, and try to present a couple of the different scenarios. I don't think, at least for me, I don't have a strong opinion on where this thing is going to fall. It seems that there's too many moving parts. I don't know. Maybe maybe you have a stronger opinion than I do, Josh. I think it's um, it's more kind of sitting back and hearing the smart people talk and trying to trying to poke holes into each theory, not to be the guy that's poking holes, but just to say, okay, well, making sure is this being considered? Is this being considered? Um, and then reacting to things as they come across our desk. Yeah, I mean that that's the thing that's hard to hard to anticipate is. How the market responds to these, you know, if, if drilling slows down, 
will it cause prices to go up? How quickly will those prices go up? And then obviously you got the international stage, international demand. Um, there may be an article in here, maybe one that I read that I didn't include, but uh, they were, the article indicated that China and India were going to be the places where gas demand is going to be rising sharpest in the next five to ten years and beyond. And any kind of deal that could be struck there, there's just so much that could change. And um, and on that Concho deal from Speakner, uh, some of the listeners may not know that um, their quarterly r- reports came out and it says that the 23 wells that make up Concho's Dominator project and the Permian were spaced too closely. And so the production is going to have to slow down so they don't overshoot some of their budgets. Uh, their uh, Concho sank 22% uh, on their stocks, which equivalent uh, to about 4.4 billion in market value that they, they lost in one day uh, when those reports came out. So that's what he was referring to. And that's what he's saying is indication that these smaller companies are, are going to have a heck of a time surviving in a market. Because like he that. thinks that, yeah, because he thinks that Concho is so well run, if they can't do it, then what about these others? And so, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, exactly. So, and you know, I, again, there's a lot of people, and and I'm not, I don't like being a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian. I, I think that, um, that that just because there's a popular narrative doesn't mean that you should follow it either. So I kind of fall in that almost. It's a contrarian in that sense, but not just a contrarian for the sake of um, always being an objectivist. I'm just not. I'm not exactly sure where it's at. I saw someone who's the pretty smart guy of the day said that he expects 30% industry jobs cut over the next few years, but. Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll see. It's um, I think it's too early too early to tell. Is is my read on it? What about water, Ryan? We got Sergio. He wrote an article that um, details some laws and de- uh, some in- industry specifics between New Mexico and Texas about water recycling that companies are shooting for. Um, a lot of good information. This has been a pretty hot topic uh, for us and for many in the industry. When I talk to people. Uh, what what we're doing with water and the struggle there has been it's been interesting. There's a, a little part in this article that talks about the average prices for water in Texas, New Mexico, and it's much cheaper on the Texas side. So New Mexico, they're trying to recycle the heck out of it so they don't have to keep buying it because it's really I mean it's almost double the price I believe. So it, it's interesting stuff going on. You know, I, I mean, we kind of call Sergio out on here regular, so it's probably time to call him out again. I did announce that I'm going out to the Produce Water Society conference last week, and now Sergio has conveniently uh, an article about water. It's almost like it's kind of like him talking about the rigs and stuff and laterals. It's almost like he listens to the show and determines his topics. But I don't ever see us referenced in the Chronicle. I don't see us there. I'm, maybe, maybe we're there somewhere, but it's um, it's not it's not apparent to me. So Sergio, if you wanted to write the feature that's on the front page of the Chronicle, you know we'll be happy to do that. But all you gotta do is ask, man. All you gotta do is ask. It's you know, it's, <laughs> it, it, it hurts, Josh. I mean, he's he he's basically taking our show and putting it on the Chronicle as if he's a full time reporter or something. It's it it hurts. It hurts. So um, thanks for that, Sergio. But no, the, the water stuff's interesting, and that, that's you know I'm curious to see, and I'm glad you brought this article up. I'm curious to see what the folks that are working in this industry day in, day out, um, what are some of the things that they're concerned with? What are, what are some of the, the, you know, the forecasts that they're going? I won't be, be at the conference the whole time, but I'll be there some. And so I've got some water meetings actually scheduled this week. So I'm really curious to follow this because um, 
you know, I mean, we've had guests on that kind of ran the spectrum of you know how big of a concern the water deal is and where they, where they think it's at. So I don't know, I don't know, and I'm not a water guy, so this is part of the problem here. I don't know where we're at on this, and it feels like um, it feels like we're, we're early stage, and it's going to go further on. But um, you know, we we talked to some folks online and offline that feel like, hey, this is probably a little bit closer to being um, not not under wraps, but it feels like it's a little closer to actually. Uh, you know, kind of having their hands around it, but you know the the reality, Josh, is that the the drilling is going to impact this. So if the drilling does slow down, if it slows down and levels off at that at that rate, then getting the water issues under wraps is a lot different than if it stay if it you know if it goes up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, you know, and those new highs are higher than the old highs. Um, that can kind of create some some instability because you're trying to figure out, okay, hey, you know, how many rigs are we working? Um, and where are things going um, in the future? And just to, just to clarify, Ron, uh, I didn't I didn't mention this. There were two laws that came out: New Mexico House Bill 546, Texas House Bill 3246, uh, that says that the gas oil and gas operators own the produced water and they can sell it to recyclers. So that was the law that was passed, and and uh, what Sergio is saying is that's going to benefit the drillers out of New Mexico. You know, much more, but it's going to benefit both sides tremendously. So, those and are. And I'm just saying, Sergio, give us a shout out on the articles. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, I see. Energy Research and Industrials Group with Deloitte Center. With Deloitte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have a special guest coming on today. This is Andrew Slaughter. He's going to be joining us. Been excited about uh, having him on the show. Uh, Andrew Slaughter is the Executive Director, Energy Research and Industrials Group with Deloitte Energy. Uh, So they study and and do research and trends that they're going on the industry. They write articles. And uh, so, Andrew, great to have you on the show today, man. Thank you. A great pleasure to be with you. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So at a high level, for the listeners who aren't familiar with Deloitte Services um, and the Energy Resources and Industrials Group, kind of 30,000 feet, who are you guys and what do you do? Yeah, so I work for Deloitte US and I lead a research group which basically tracks, analyzes and gives insight into the oil and gas sector, the chemical sector the electric power sector and the manufacturing sector. We tend to write about market trends, um, strategies, company strategies and sector strategies and investment patterns that we see. Well, that ties in a lot to what we were talking about on the show earlier. We're talking about, um, you know, uh, we talk about Diamondback, and the, the latest news there is kind of looking positive. Exxon, Chevron, and then Concho is kind of a uh, not as well, um, not as positive outlook, at least after the second quarter earnings. Um, and there's a lot of inter- interest in the upstream market right now. Some people are saying we have a listener who's a kind of a pretty sharp guy, and he, he writes in and says, you know, Armageddon's coming for the oil and gas upstream market. Uh, Josh and I are kind of like, eh, there's kind of mixed signals. Um, you guys seem to follow this pretty closely. Um, what are you looking at for the Permian specific? What are you guys seeing with the upstream companies? What are some trends that we should be looking for over the next six months to a year? You know, the overall environment is still quite uncertain. Um, You know, we had the price drop in Q4 2018. We had a a one-day price drop last week, which just creates some uncertainty around the market. 
but uh, in, in, in the Permian particularly, you know, they're weathering the storm. Uh, drilling is going on. Production is continuing, continuing to climb. And I think uh, as long as companies tell the story about how they're investing and drilling within cash flow and also returning cash to investors, I think uh, they have a positive outlook uh, relative to the market uh, and investors. Yeah, one of the things we've um, talked about on the show before is, you know, um, if you're if you're in school and kind of use the GPA analogy, if you, you know, you're a B, C student and then you have a bad low, you score low on a test and you get an F, you know, it's really hard to bring that average back up. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, the downturn in the market, um, some of those companies put out big fat Fs and a couple of them, um, and they're trying to recover. But if we did see another downturn right now, what is, is there... Um, is there hope for the upstream uh, the producers, especially the smaller ones, or is it too close to a, a recent downturn to uh, to keep it to, to keep these things going? You, you, you know, the down, the big downturn post two thousand and fourteen was extremely damaging to the industry. It had built up all these investments and debt in the hundred dollar world, but what that what that did it made companies focus on fundamentals, on cost performance, on focus drilling, on uh, reining in investment to their best prospects, driving down unit costs. And so fundamentally, all the sector is in much better shape than it was you know, five years ago. And so if there were a downturn from this $50 world to you know, something t- 10 or $15 lower, um, the industry knows how to respond. It's again just looking at capital discipline, looking at focusing drilling, looking at costs. Um, I think the industry is fundamentally much more healthy than it was, uh, uh, you know, pre pre 2014. The hundred dollar world did a lot of damage, clearly, but it made it was a wake up call to um, actually refocus on positive fundamentals in terms of financial and operating performance. We've seen companies like Weatherford and Schlumberger. Obviously, Weatherford's in a little different shape than Schlumberger is. But you see the oil field service market kind of change um, um, and, and, and trying to figure out how they're going to survive in this new market. So let's get away from the EMPs. Let's talk about maybe the oil field service side of things. Um, what are What is the outlook for oil field, oil field services? Can they survive as they have? Will they have to diversify and get more international, go back more offshore? Um, or maybe they've got you know they've just gotten too big and they're going to have to contract. Um, I know uh, we talked on the show a few weeks ago about putting Mark Papa as the chairman of Schlumberger, who's not been very um, his, his outlook rather is not is um, as positive as some for shale production. So, how do you see oilfield services um, shaking out over the next you know, two to three years? Yeah, you, you know, there's one thing to say up front in this discussion was that a healthy and successful upstream E and P sector needs a healthy and successful service sector to be uh, to make the whole thing work. And so, yes, the, the service companies were in the front line of the downturn in terms of a squeeze on their costs, or a, a, a real squeeze on their activity, and they are taking much longer to recover. Um, you know, I think the way to the way to recovery for services is, um, um, you know, focus on differentiated value in terms of helping EMPs 
increased well productivity, um, uh, focusing on the regions and types of activity they know, they know best. And I think, um, you know, it is likely that there'll be further consolidation, that, you know, the sector is still weak in financial performance and quite fragmented. There are the big boys, but there's a long tail of, of smaller companies which um, maybe would do better if they, um, you, you know, consolidated some. Andrew, um, I was reading an article that you put out a couple months ago back in May. Um, kind of to two-part question. Uh, the, the first one is, you mentioned some technology that's going to be used, specifically blockchain and how that could help streamline the, um, the trading process for natural gas. I mean, uh, how do you see some of the technology like blockchain? How, do, how will that help uh, the trading process for natural gas? What is your insights into that? I mean, we're in the early days of blockchain. I know in um, in in the trading world, the you know the main pilot I know about blockchain is in North Sea crude oil trading, um, where you know the the key success factor was to have market participants um, you know sign on to that and and participate. The difference between that and natural gas trading is, of course, that. In the U.S. natural gas, there are many, many more participants in the market, and so for blockchain to take off, you know, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a longer road and a harder sell. Um, you know, what 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 the advantages of a system like blockchain are that it reduces um, a transaction and reconciliation error, so it's reducing a lot of cost in terms of back office cost to operate it, uh, operate trading operations. And it it, 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 it it potentially brings more confidence between trading partners. But I think we're a bit of a ways off in the U.S. gas market for it to uh, really get 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 going. Uh, and last last part of the question, you also mentioned uh, that countries like United States and Qatar are going to be leading on the supply side for natural gas or, or LNG. You also say that the highest demand is going to come from Asian countries like China and India, and we've seen uh, some of that with China. Uh, do you think that has the potential to really uh, revolutionize the natural gas market here in the United States as far as uh, increasing the increasing demand causing gas prices to go up, or do you think that uh, their increasing demand will have relatively little impact on the natural gas prices on the United States side? So I think there's two parts to that. Um, rising demand in Asia is structural and it will go on for a long time. And so, you know, U.S. building LNG export capacity makes sense. Um, and there will be a market both in India and China, but also in Southeast Asia and, um, you know, even even um, some parts of Europe, there's still a market in, in Latin America. So it makes sense. The domestic gas market in the U.S. will probably have lower growth in the next 10 years than it did in the last 10 years because a lot of the easy wins have been done. Um, however, you know, you mentioned the impact on, 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 on price. U.S. has a tremendous resource in natural gas. Uh, you think of the Marcellus up in the northeast. You think of the associated gas from the Permian. Uh, those are very economic, at relatively low gas prices. And so you've seen, you know, negative prices at Waha even. You've seen um, 
quite deeply discounted prices up in the Marcellus at times, but drilling goes on and gas continues to flow. And so I think there's room for quite a bit more demand before you really get an impact on uh, on gas prices. We're not back to the early years of, of this century when there were you know price spikes every winter. We're in a completely different environment now. Thanks to shale gas, of course. One of the things we talk about the oil and gas industry, and we try to remind ourselves to think in these terms, is a lot of the news is definitely driven by production, EMP companies, but we also have you know the midstream and the downstream segments. Um, what's going on in the midstream industry right now from your vantage point? I think we got an article here in a little bit Josh is going to talk about um, that Enterprise Products has record profits. Um, we have some uncertainty, feels like, maybe in the EMP side, but the midstream side is that um, – more certain or is there some warning signs we should be following there as well you know the window is open for the midstream to return to uh growth um you know that kind of organic growth i mean new project investment that window kind of closed during the worst of the downturn 2015 2016 that's open now as these growth basins continue to expand. So they need takeaway capacity. They need gas processing capacity. They need, uh, you know, export terminal capacity, all midstream operations. So that growth engine is there for the midstream. You know, what we found that's a little bit more concerning is the capital efficiency and the project execution efficiency of midstream companies. Uh, we did a report a few months ago which uh, showed that the return on cap- returns on capital in midstream are still lagging uh, where they should be relative to their cost of capital. And so it's a challenge to, for that sector to become more capital efficient. And I see them doing that through you know, better project management, better use of digital technologies, smart planning, smart execution smart integration of their supply chain. Um, and I, I, I see it possibly in different contracting and market anticipation relationships with, uh, with producers who, uh, who need, the, need the kit in the ground, the pipe in the ground to get the molecules out. And this isn't an exact science on this on this answer here, but it's a gut feeling. How much of maybe the the um, just to kind of loosely throw out the term mismanagement or maybe not optimal management midstream projects is due to the constraints that we saw in the Permian Basin, and so there's a lot of pressure on midstream companies to get out there and to get pipe in the ground to get product flowing. How much do you weigh that in when you're looking at some of these um, disappointing returns? I mean. Um I, I don't specifically, you know, attribute it to, 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 to that. You know, structurally, any growth basin, if you look back 5, 10, 15, 20 years, any growth basin, wellhead activity gets ahead of midstream activity. And so, um, you know, to the extent that that happens, there's an economic signal to invest, and investment follows. I think, um, you know, just generally, um, uh, the growth dynamic in places like the Permian or the Marcellus, it, it, it's just an incentive for midstream companies to be more nimble to anticipate market needs. I think the, you know, the capital efficiency can be dealt with independently of that, you know, really stru- restructuring sources of capital. 
and, uh, and, and and that type of thing. But I think you know, uh, I, this is what we would expect to see in terms of bottlenecks. You know, it it, it happened in the Rockies in the um, in the nineties. You know, it happens. Uh, happened. It happened all through the the history of the Marcellus buildup, and uh, it gets resolved. Okay, final question as we get ready to get towards the second half of the year. You know, it's crazy. We're in August already. But um, M&A activity as we look um, to wind out 2019, do you expect any big deals to happen or smaller deals or no no deals at all? Uh, And we will hold you to this. (laughs) Right, right. If if I only knew, if I only knew, I wouldn't be on a salary. Um, Exactly. Um, you know, I don't see anything in today's market, which is made me call this differently from three months ago and and, and six months ago. There's still too much uncertainty around the price environment. um, And there's too much uncertainty about, um, you know, too much uncertainty in the eyes of investors about whether companies can really sustain their capital discipline over the long term. And so, as you know, you know, public equity markets and public debt markets are not looking, still not looking favorably on the sector. So that leaves private money, which is probably not sufficient to, to fuel a big M&A boom. And so I think it's just going to take a while longer for confidence in the sector to to be really embedded in the minds of investors. We've a ways to go. So yes, you know, every deal is unique. We might see deals. You know, we saw a big one a, a month or so ago. But every deal is unique, and clearly we will see deals. But there's no underlying dynamic that there's a, a quick turnaround on that. Okay, so we, we talked about it at the beginning. Let's kind of circle back around to this. Um, Deloitte Services, Energy Resources, and Industrials, you are obviously doing a lot of stuff. Um, recap what it is you guys do, where can people find you at, um, is there any conferences or newsletters or websites or where, wherever you want to push people to, uh, please get all that in there now so we can send our listeners your way. Yes, we, uh, my group publishes research papers, analytical and insight papers on oil and gas, chemicals, electric power, and manufacturing. Um, if people go to Deloitte.com, click on the industries pay tab at the industries link at the top of that page, and then you'll see um, uh, our three big sectors, oil, and, oil, gas, and chemicals, power and utilities, and industrial products. Click through, and that will bring you to a selection of our recent uh, uh, articles and papers. They're all publicly available, um, and so uh, I'm very happy for people to look at them and get in touch with us with, uh, with questions and, um, and, and comments. And we will link to that specific link. The um, if you go to the top of the page and click on um, industry, uh, energy resources, and industrials, we'll link to that link directly in the show notes. So listeners can go straight to where they care about, which is oil and gas. And, and hey, they got a lot of stuff there as well. But for the purpose of this podcast, there it is. Um, all of the energy related stuff will be linked right there. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for your time today, and hopefully get you on again in the future. Well, it's been a great pleasure. A lot of fun talking to you, and um, uh, hopefully we can do it again one day.
Thanks again to Andrew for coming on. He is the executive director of Energy Research and Industrials Group at Deloitte. For more information, you can go to Deloitte.com. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Josh, it was interesting stuff, I thought. What did you think, sir? I enjoyed having him, man. I, I enjoyed some of the insights. He's definitely well-read and uh he he knows he knows quite a bit what's going on in the industry. You know his his take on some of the you know China and India the the rising demand that's going to be coming there. He doesn't see that as having a direct impact on prices because of, uh, I guess, the maturity of the natural gas right. industry. And with an accent like that, you just sound like you know what you're talking about. Like if I need I need one of those, I can just deploy that. I either need Nate's smooth, deep voice, or I need a kind of that that British accent so I can just sound like I really know what I'm talking about. Instead, I got this crummy thing. It's unfair. It's unfair because somebody would listen to both of us, even if I am definitely right. It's like I sound like a southern idiot. (laughs) He can't even say Carrizo right. What a moron. Yeah. <laughs> see, see, that's the thing. When you have that accent, people just kind of forgive you because they're like, "Oh, okay, well, he didn't nail this pronunciation, but, but he has the accent." Me and you, we just got that redneck slang, and people are like, "Good lord, people, get that stick of butter out your mouth," you know. And we don't get that kind of special treatment. So, yeah. um, listeners only knew half of the blunders that I've had. <laughs> we might have a gag reel saved up for one day. Oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> Burn it. Trash it. <laughs> oh man but no thanks again to getting come on nate actually i guess he gets an attaboy because he set all that up so attaboy nate for getting out there and getting that done so um it turned out well and hopefully they will come on again in the future so good stuff well ryan we have not done our texas roundup for the day so we'll run through those real quick before we end the show uh we have two articles on enterprise so first one enterprise nearly doubles year over year profits amid record pipeline volumes so um as we talked a little bit with andrew on the show the midstream the opportunities there enterprise has been capitalizing on that opportunity Second, Enterprise seeks to expand the Houston Ship Channel amid surging exports. So I also spoke a little bit with Andrew today on the show about some of the rising demand in some of these countries. So they are looking to uh, capitalize on opportunities to increase their exporting capacity. Enterprise entered into a deal, I believe, with... Uh, was it Chevron or was it X Chevron? Uh, Enterprise and Chevron are going into a deal, the SPOT, uh, the Seaport Oil Terminal. It's a proposed offshore crude oil export terminal, um, and it is going to be able to export more than 6 million barrels of crude oil um, and, and hold about 300 million barrels of storage. Uh, Harris County, I don't know if you guys heard about the fire that happened this week. Harris County is planning to, or has already placed a, or filed a lawsuit against Exxon for that fire. Uh, they say that they transgress a, uh, their Clean Air um, Act. So, well, interesting to see how this how this develops. I know I know that the fire didn't kill anyone this week, uh, thankfully. Several were injured. I don't believe anyone was hospitalized, so no significant injuries. And they said they tested the air. I saw on Twitter where they tested the air and they lifted uh, their air monitoring has not detected any levels of concern. So we'll continue to keep an eye on the on the lawsuit and see how that goes. 
And last but not least, Oxy formed a $1.5 billion Permian Basin JV with Echo Petrol's South American country. And they're going to partner with them to help develop some of their Midland acreage. So they're developing some of their Midland acreage. Ryan, with that, I think that uh, wraps us up for today, bud. Yep. Again, the listeners, I will be out in Midland. Nate said this will be out at 2 a.m. on Tuesday, so that means uh, I will be in Midland by the time this arrives. But you want to reach out if you're in Midland, LinkedIn. Nate will um, put my LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Be happy to connect if I have some time. We'll be swinging by for part of the time of the Produced Water Society's new, uh, not new, at their event with my co-host my new podcast, Bringing the Closures, Ben Samuels. If you haven't checked it out, maybe Nate will be kind enough to link to those episodes in the show notes as well. Josh, good to be back. Be back again next week, aren't we? Yeah, we're back next week. Uh, we're heading down to, I know I'm heading down to Nape. Are you heading down to Nape, Josh? Have you decided if you're going? Uh, I have not 100%. Uh, I've talked to a few people, and it looks like I can line out most of the meetings in DFW. Um, some folks that are there. So he hates you, people in Houston. He does hate y'all. I will be a man of the people coming down to Nape um, to visit with all the people down in Houston who I don't expect to drive up here to see me. So that's the difference between me and Josh. I will be out about. We are going to be in Tulsa. We have talked about this online. We had a few listeners reach out. Uh, I think the 28th and 29th or one of those days. So for listeners up there, uh, we are booking that up. But if you want to know, so anyways, Midland this week, Houston next two weeks, then Tulsa. I will be on the road. Josh will be drinking pina coladas or whatever he does on his free time. And until next time, keep climbing.